You're listening to City Church Long Beach Sermons Podcast. You can visit us at citychurchlongbeach.org. Thank you, Stephen. Good morning, friends. It is so good that we get to be able to gather like this on one of those just interesting Sundays, you know, in the midst of all the holidays, people traveling, um, people just needing some extra rest. So glad to be able to give some of our volunteer teams um, a little bit more of a break this Sunday this way. And and honestly, just some of us wanting to keep our germs at home or not be around other people's germs uh, for a little bit. Um, so, so good to be here with you. I think everybody knows me, but I'll say just in case, I'm Brenda Rubio, one of the co-pastors here at City Church of Long Beach. My pronouns are she, her. And at City Church, we are a radically welcoming community on the journey towards Jesus, joining him in the renewal of all things. I'm just thinking some of us, even Mary Van Geffen already mentioned this morning, hey, I haven't done Zoom church before. For some of us, we're like, hey, we're just clicking back into that old Zoom. This is how we used to do things during COVID. Um, But so a couple of just little orientations to doing church online this way. Um, One is that you do not have to have your video camera on. Um, but if you'd like to, it's kind of fun to get to see everybody's faces and even to see a little bit into your homes. And even if you're folding laundry or you're on the treadmill uh, while you're here at church, we actually think that would be delightful to see if you'd like to um, put yourself on screen. Definitely putting your name up there so we can say, oh, my friend is here or a friend I have not met yet is here. We would love to see your name. And so I'm actually going to give us a minute. One, if you'd like to turn on your screen or you'd like to make sure your name is showing, you can do that. But then also, I want to invite you, whether you're on your laptop or on a phone, I want to invite you to take a second and smile and scroll through and see everybody's names. See the faces for the people who put on their video camera and just appreciate that we are actually here together this morning. This is not just a passive, you know, like watching a movie. This is us actually being church together this morning. And so look at these names. Look at these faces. Yeah, feel free. Put some questions in the chat. Your dog is so cute. What's her name? Um, Hey, I see that picture or what's on your mug. We are actually community here this morning. This is not just a passive experience. We get to be a radically welcoming loving, Jesus-centered community here together. And we are actually legitimately so excited um, that each of you has been able to join us in this way. It is good to be here together, even online. As we move into just our time of connecting with God, connecting with each other, even more so, we've already started with our worship. We're going to spend some time in scripture and conversation like usual. Um, But I'd like to invite us just to take a few deep breaths uh, and to pray together. Um, Just let our hearts, our souls begin to settle and connect. So feel free if it helps you to shut your eyes now, you can. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe you actually want to look at something beautiful in your space. Maybe you even want to touch something beautiful lovely in your space, grab somebody's hand, maybe if there's someone next to you. Just take a minute, let your soul and your heart begin to settle. Breathing in, your beloved. Breathing out, trust. Breathing in, beloved. Breathing out, 
trust. God, thank you that we get to be here together on this transitional day as we say goodbye to one year, as we welcome in a new one. That means different things to each of us. And you're here with us in this moment. Thanks for getting to see each other, to be reminded that we are not alone. Thanks for being able to spend time in reflection together, reflection from scripture, reflection from the questions that each person is gonna have the chance to put into the chat, um, the thoughts, the insights, Thanks, God, for speaking to us. We want to pray just a special prayer blessing over our children, some of them gathered with us uh, in front of our computers or phones, others playing in other rooms, um, others just play. Just, uh, you know, the, I think especially of the kids at Lafayette, because we are not there this week, and yet we still lift those kids up to you. We lift the children up especially in, in war-torn areas of the world, thinking especially of Gaza this morning, God, of the conflict in the Middle East. God, would you be with the children in a special way? Thanks for loving us and loving this world back into life, into wholeness. We love you too, God. Amen. Amen. Um, yeah, thanks, Brian Rubio. I appreciate that. Um, we are in a, we're actually, this is wrapping up our Advent sermon series today, um, thinking about we are those who dream and what does it mean to be dreamers and, and follow uh, where God leads. And so today our text comes from Isaiah 62. And um, our friend Amanda Gutierrez is going to read that scripture for us today. So, uh, you know, typically around in, in person, we stand, but that that's just so weird. Um, so we're not going to stand, uh, but Amanda's going to read for us. Can everyone hear me? Awesome. Um, for, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet till her vindication shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your vindication and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hephaziah. Sorry, Bill, you're going to have to sit down. <laughs> and your land, uh, Biel, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. Uh, for the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. 
people of God, this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Um, Amanda, I feel like that was a great reading. So thank you for, uh, <laughs> I, I think that's actually how almost all of us read those words. It's just, we, we don't say that out loud. So thank you for saying it out loud. I appreciate that. Um, so we are in, in this passage and it's, I, I want to invite everyone to just kind of hang with us today. We're going to go a few really, um, places that may feel different uh, and disparate, but I actually believe that, that God has a word for us. Um, and uh, so we're just, we're going to stumble into this passage. So um, I want to start by saying that, that our theology matters, kind of how we read scripture, what we believe about God and the world, it matters and it impacts what we do with our lives and it impacts our world and there's a particular issue at the head of this passage that we just have to address i mean it's just too uh timely and this is not a passage that um sort of i chose for this day for the sermon this was part of a sort of series that brenna and i decided on a couple of months ago and so this was the assigned passage but it really does seem very timely um, because it, it talks about the vindication of Jerusalem. It mentions that two times. And in our current uh, climate and what's going on in our world, Jerusalem is much in the news and the politics and the war in Gaza. Um, and it, it just matters. And so what happens is what we think about the text affects what we do with our life. What we believe matters because when we're in positions of power, so imagine yourself, whether it's law enforcement or maybe you're an educator in the classroom, what you believe about race. And if you believe like one ethnic group is better than others, that will actually affect how you police or how you educate. What do you think about the ideal body type? What you believe about this will actually affect, and, and scientifically it's proven, will affect your mental health when you look in the mirror. Like what goes on in here and in here matters and impacts what we do with our lives. And so when we get to passages like this, and there are many of them in scripture, that talk about the, like in this passage, it's the vindication of Jerusalem, you know, so that all nations would recognize that Jerusalem has been vindicated. Um, it actually really matters what we think about this. And we need to pause here for a minute. Some of us, uh, including myself, we try to avoid the disturbing news about the war in Gaza. It's just too disorienting. It's too disturbing. And yet, there's a way to read this passage 
and th this passage has been read and is being read that does lead directly to the kind of violence we now see in Gaza today. So I just want to give a little bit of, of, of kind of some of the sobering facts about this violence and connect it to how we view scripture. So in response to the October 7th attack by Hamas, uh, which killed well over a thousand Israelis, um, almost all of them civilians, Israel has waged a war in which it has killed more than 20 times that many Palestinians. It's in the last two months, it's killed over 10,000 children. The Israeli attacks have displaced 1.9 million Palestinians. And by and large, humanitarian aid has been prevented almost entirely from entering to help with the wounded and the sick to bring water and food. And Palestinians are facing a humanitarian crisis of ep just epic proportions. A whole people is being decimated right in front of our eyes. Let's think a little bit about how we how we get here. The, the church in the West, largely the white evangelical church, um, has been an enormous support for this war against the Palestinians. You can read about this in the news all you want, um, but evangelical support has been almost unanimous. Not entirely, but almost. And it's largely based on our reading of the Bible. We read the Bible, we read places like this that talk about, hey, Jerusalem, you know, God, we're praying for the, the establishment of Jerusalem, we're praying for the justification of, you know, Jerusalem, for the vindication of Jerusalem. There's a historic reading of these texts, and again, there are many of them, and this is just one of a, a hundred that has this enormous impact on national politics. If, if you go way back to when the first European settlers came to America, they talked openly I mean, it's, it's in all sorts of official documents about this biblical idea of manifest destiny. So th this is our heritage as, as a nation, that we believe that God had given us this country and that that justified killing and displacing all the peoples who are already here. That, that's, that's the heritage of, of Christian Europeans coming to this country, believing in manifest destiny. And then that's just the beginning. And I am not a, a great historian, 
I'm certainly not a politician. Um, and I, I don't have all the expertise that I should have. But you can read. Uh, read Austin Channing Brown and Lisa Harper. Read Kat Armas and uh, Kristen uh, Dumay. You know, read James Baldwin and James Cohn. And, and you realize, oh, this is actually the history of our, of our nation. Like ever since we began, we had this belief that God commanded violence. I recently have had a couple of conversations this month, earlier this month with friends um, from my from my more evangelical past around this idea of genocide, this idea of God commanding violence, of God wiping out a whole people. And one conversation in particular has just, it's just really settled on me and you could say triggered or it's just, um, in some ways it's haunted me. So this old friend of mine, uh, who is a kind man, thoughtful, um, he's an educator, he loves his students, uh, he's doing his best to love his family. And we had an extensive uh, email conversation followed by a phone conversation about, about these texts. And he believes that God commands genocide. It's how he reads the Bible. And I didn't ask him about what he believed about the war in Gaza right now. Um, I, I, I don't know what he thinks about that. But there's this connection between what we believe and what we do. And it's a winding connection for sure. I don't understand it all. And I'm sure I am so wrong about so many parts of it. But I can't ignore it. It's, it's in the text. There's this push for the vindication of Jerusalem, which is the capital city of Israel today and was then. And there's a reason, I think, that, you know, recently, uh, within the last two weeks, our government has sent another 14,000 tank shells to Israel. I think a lot of it is due to the church reading passages like ours today, saying Israel is always right. God condones violence. We are, there are occasions when you can destroy an entire ethnic group. I don't think that's what this passage is about. I think the rest of scripture bears out that that is not what this passage is about. And the next verses do as well. But I can't get around the fact that what we believe matters and it affects things 
what we do with our money, how we spend our time, how we vote, um, who we protest. So I want to shift into the next verses and try to think through what is God's heart here? There's a book that uh, I'd recommend for anyone. It's called A Lens of Love by Jonathan Walton. Uh, is an African-American scholar who helps people think through how to read the Bible centering on Jesus and on Jesus' greatest commands to love God and to love people, which always centers those who have been least loved, who've been least centered, the most marginalized, that God always has a special heart for these. And that's where this passage goes, interestingly. It goes to this point of saying, hold on, I want to remind you who you really are. What is at the absolute core of what it means to be human? And so listen, this is these are the words that that uh, that Amanda, read over us um i will do no better with the with the funky words but but listen to this listen to these to the way that god is thinking about humanity god says in isaiah 62 in the very next verse after this idea of, of establishing jerusalem uh it's the next verse um joe yeah sorry i skipped that one you will be called by a new name that the mouth of Yahweh will bestow. You will be called, you will be a crown of splendor in the in Yahweh's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. They will no longer call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you will be called whatever that whatever that is, for Yahweh will take delight in you. So that word hefziba um, <clears throat> actually means delighted in. It's it's like um it's like the name Karis, which means grace, right? Um, it, it, it's a name with a meaning. But what, what's going on here is that the God is saying, you are so precious. You are so delighted in this particular historic incident. Um, the people of Jerusalem have been, they have been decimated. And God is saying, I see you there on the margins. And God is speaking this to humanity, to those, particularly those who've been pushed to the margins. And God is saying, I'm going to delight in you. You will be a crown of splendor in Yahweh's hand, a royal diadem. That's the, the crown that they would place on the, the queen or king's head. And God's saying, that's, that's you. That, that's this people. That's all who trust in God. That's, that's all who are made in God's image. That, that you are, are the crown of splendor. And if, when you think about this crown of splendor and the royal diadem, it's not like they didn't have copies of these. You couldn't run this through a 3D printer. 
there was one crown for the queen. There was one crown for the king. I mean, these were unique items that were glorious. They were they had gems and they were precious metals. They were and, and God's saying, that's you. Because you are made in my image. You are so beloved. You are so precious. I delight in you. And so what that means is that every Palestinian is made in God's image and is that crown of splendor. And every Israeli is made in God's image to be that crown of splendor. And everyone on this call is made in God's image, is that crown of splendor. You are, and your crazy family members that you just spent time with and they drove you nuts. These are the ones, yes, I see you smirking. You know, yes, these are the ones who are precious. And to look at scripture through the lens of love says that that our core theology starts with being made in God's image and beloved, that Christ came for all, from God so loved the world, right? That Christ was given. So we would know our true worth and value. That's the picture here. That's the core theology. And so as we read the other scriptures, that's when we go, we we look at the scriptures that some say justify even genocide, like my friend. And we say, I actually do not think that that is possible. When looking at the person of Jesus and the core theology of humanity as God's beloved image bearers, it is not possible that God would command violence to desecrate the, the most prized creation. And so the, the, the news here, and so Joe, we can go back to the one that I skipped from Isaiah 62.1. And so what Isaiah is saying is, I will not keep silent. I will not remain quiet uh, in Isaiah 62.1. That's where this passage starts. That's the good news. Too many times we've, we've been told like, hey, let me tell you the good news. You're a rotten sinner and you're going to hell. That's not the good news. The good news is no. You are made in God's image. You are dearly beloved. And so I will not keep silent. I will not remain quiet. I will speak these things. And all of us, let's speak these things that human beings matter, that violence is not the answer. It's never the answer, could never be the answer.
Because when Jesus showed up, Jesus showed up and he, he brought love and he taught about love. And, and some of my friends recently, one of my friends in particular, a different one, has said to me like, oh, you're just wishy-washy on scripture. You don't preach truth because you just want to talk about love. When we see Jesus teach, he, Jesus is not afraid to speak truth. But notice who he speaks it to. Jesus is always speaking truth to power. Always. And always criticizing those who are using their authority to wound, oppress, take advantage of, marginalize, do violence to others. But Jesus is radically welcoming. I mean, that's how you see Jesus interacting with all the people of the world. Just so welcoming, accepting, valuing the stories. That's what Jesus is about. And I feel like, man, I, I, I will err on that side if I can. And I got plenty of issues that I'm working out. And so do you. But if we allow the truth of, of who we are, of our belovedness, and follow this Savior who we just celebrated his birth, I believe we'll end up very different places than where often our churches have ended up. And I, I want to shift because what happens here now is in this passage, so it starts with that piece about the vindication of Jerusalem goes into this core identity as being the beloved image bearers of God. And then it shifts into this focus on marriage, that we will be married to God, that, that as a young man marries a woman, so your builder will marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. And there are all these images about marriage here. And and I just want to, I, I, yeah, so there, there's the verse on your screen from Isaiah 62. And this is where this kind of clump of, of verses ends. And I want to note that sometimes the traditional definition of marriage has been used to actually exclude people. You're not unaware of this. You know, single people. Right, so often are not as valued or talked about um, or centered in the church experience. Divorced people, gay people. Too often we've used kind of a traditional definition of marriage to exclude when actually passages like this give a very different perspective on what marriage really is and what the court image of marriage is. And so I've invited a friend, a city church friend, uh, who's going to talk a little bit about this. So uh, say hi to the nice people, David Newton. Hey, nice are, people. Are you unmuted? Oh, yeah. <laughs> David, um, we really want to commend you on how you set up your room today for this Zoom. Thank you. Yeah, uh, I uh, had a lot of help from my, my niece. <laughs> yeah, she, that's what you she, say. She let me use her room. Yeah, that's the story I'm going to stick with. <laughs> um, so David was a pastor in uh, South Africa for a while. Um, 
and has since transitioned. He lives here in the States, although currently he's in uh, just outside of London. Uh, so thank you for zooming in on your New Year's Eve. Sorry to wreck your, I don't know. Have they, started the par have they started the party outside yet? No, no one's, uh, no one's, it's dark. I mean, it's been dark since 4.30. So okay. Um, okay. who knows where people are right now? They haven't come out of their hobbit holes yet. Okay. So David has actually done a lot of work on this, on this theology that, that Isaiah is getting at here. And so he's done some teaching in a couple of spaces around city church, but uh, there's a bunch of stuff online that's really good, really helpful. And so I just wanted to invite David in. Um, David, first off, just tell us a little bit, how long have you been around city church? Why are you here? Uh, I'm sure my wife will correct me, but I think it's probably just over a year now. Okay. Yeah, we uh, uh, we got we got directed here from I think there's uh, um, a, a Long Beach. I think there's probably a couple of Long Beach therapists who uh, <laughs> who say to their people, "Hey, I think there's a community that would okay. would you would fit into." So uh, we were directed this way because we have a, a history of that in our family, history of the LGBT uh, Q people struggles, you know arguments around thanksgiving tables yeah right there you go uh well we're certainly glad you're here so talk to us a little bit about this passage and a little bit around this theology of marriage and how you understand right. that and and what, what does that do for us yeah thanks bill um and hi everyone um i i would normally uh kick off with some sort of a a joke to break the tension but i don't want to do that i think the the, the tension that's been created, I think, is important. Um, and and uh, if you're anything like me, you potentially still feel right now that even as we've gone through it, there are a lot of questions still unanswered. Um, and what on earth would I be... Uh, what on earth does marriage have to do with this? Um, how does marriage have anything to do with this? So what I'm going to do in the handful of minutes that I've been given allotted for this is I'm gonna I'm gonna start by Tarantinoing this. I'm gonna I'm gonna start by telling you where I would like to land this, and I believe that with everything that's been kicked up uh, over this uh, the last few minutes, I want to show you how marriage is actually God's tool for vindicating Jerusalem. That marriage. A true godly understanding of marriage is God's tool for the vindication of Jerusalem. And I realize uh, we all come in to even hearing the term marriage with our own filters and connotations. I don't think there's anyone who can hear the term marriage without bringing into it our own baggage. Um, I certainly do, whether it's um, our own hurts, uh, having watched people in our own lives, how they've handled marriage, some good, some not so good, and it's left us with filters. And to be honest, marriage is on a decline. Um, just in the United States, statistics say that um, that marriage is down 60% since the 70s. And if we look globally, um, a, a recent study said that China, that is currently hovering about around 1.4 billion uh, people right now, that uh, in the next 75 years is going to be less than half of that at just under 600 million people. And that's because marriage and families and generally the whole overall belief and hope of marriage is under attack. Um, and it's understandable, of course, because um, 
since the beginning of creation, marriage has been uh, bastardized, it's been perverted, and it's been used as a, a weapon. And I know that we often in our community talk about how weapon is, uh, how marriage has been weaponized against the LGBTQIA plus community. And that is true, 100%. But marriage has been weaponized against all of God's people since the beginning of uh, time, since the beginning of, of creation. God's enemy has taken marriage, has taken the purest intention for marriage that God intended marriage to be, the simplest intention for marriage, took it and bastardized it in order to facilitate some of the um, some of the the curses that uh, that have been laid upon humanity, like marriage has been used uh, to broker deals of peace in war, to expand land and kingdoms. Marriages have been used to continue bloodlines um, and on and on. Marriage is, these are not the things that God um, intended marriage to be. And so the reason I start there is to say that when we use just the term marriage, our minds are often flooded with an understanding of what we think marriage is. And I think what I'd like us to do is to ask the question, well, if we could just clear that for a second and ask the question, what is the simplest, most pure understanding of what God intended when God invented marriage? Um, and I'd like to maybe just give us the simplest understanding of that. And it, it helps to understand that it's, and that's crazy to think because marriage is so much a part of our, our world. It's crazy to think that there was a time where the concept of marriage didn't exist. God, at some point in eternity past, decided to invent the concept of marriage. And the concept of marriage was because God wanted, had a desire to enter into a covenant relationship with a people. But there they they needed to be certain simple factors that needed to be at play for this perfect marriage to exist. Now, we make marriage about so many things, as I've said, but I want to show you how not only is marriage, at godly marriage, very simple, but it also didn't originate where we mostly preach it from. Marriage did not originate. The first concept of marriage didn't begin in the Garden of Eden. The original concept of marriage began uh, in eternity past. It, it began before God created the world. Ephesians chapter 1 says, before God laid the foundations of the world, he already loved us and he already chose us to be with him in Christ, loved us. And so in order for that to happen, God had to have created this concept of marriage. And so uh, I want to take a look at, I've got a slide just to kind of give us a very basic understanding. If we want to understand God's original marriage concept, it can be propped up by three simple pillars and three simple pillars alone. First of all, God needed to create our reality and create a people, but he needed to give the people something unique. And the thing that mankind needed to have was free will. And that's the next slide. That's the first pillar. God wanted to be in a marriage relationship with an entity that chose to be in that marriage. And you can see that there are so many marriages today that don't have the pillar of free will. So many arranged marriages. That is an attack on God's original concept of marriage. 
that when it, when, whenever you take the free will aspect out of marriage, you take away one of the vital components of God's original concept of marriage. The second one is that God wanted to enter into a, a covenant with a people. That's the second one. That God wanted to propose that we would be in a covenant relationship and the other party, us, could use our free will to be in that covenant relationship as well. And the third one is that it all is housed in love. And so the, the original concept of marriage rarely is those three pillars. It needs to have free will, people entering into a covenant, and it needs to be housed in love. I am convinced from scripture that it doesn't matter who you choose to love, but it does choose, does matter how you choose to love them. And free will, covenant, and love are God's pillars for marriage. Everything else is an add-on. Um, and if you take a look at this Isaiah 62 passage, and then we hold it up against the Revelation chapter 19 and also Revelation chapter 15, you will see that this marriage that God has at the end of time that Bill talked about, this marriage of God entering into a free will covenant of love with his people is actually the vindication of Jerusalem. Because where does this marriage take place? It takes place in the new Jerusalem. And this new Jerusalem is made up of Jews and Gentiles, every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's made up of Palestinians and Jews. It's made up of gay and straight. It's made up of uh, black and white, every tribe, tongue, nation on the planet. This is the new Jerusalem. This is God's crown of, of his creation being brought together as the bride and entering into this marriage. So I believe that a true understanding of the, the, the pillars of marriage, the simple pillars of marriage will help us to understand. It's what Jesus talked about, that Jesus talked about us loving one another. Jesus came to bring the new covenant and he wants us. He says he stands at the door and knocks. He stands at the door and knocks. And we, if we choose to open it, we can enter into this covenant relationship with him. We are the bride of God. And this is the vindication of Jerusalem through marriage and it includes all of us and so to kind of end by asking the question like why should uh we care to have a right understanding of marriage because i think it is the basis of god's fight for his people marriage is the tool that god is going to use to win his people back and as bill has said those people are are all people and you can see that if we understand this, um, we understand that whether whether they live in Gaza or whether they live in Jerusalem, it is crazy to think that some of these people are going to be joined with us as the bride of Christ. And, and so um, I guess the question is, we need to ask, and it's a question I have to ask myself, is, is my current understanding of marriage, is it based has it been formed out of clay that I was handed to by someone else, by a by my family's belief, by uh, my own understanding, my own basic understanding of marriage? And then has it been molded by hurts or filters or things that have happened to me? And should I align myself with what God's understanding of marriage is? Let him 
give me the clay. Let him be the potter to mold that clay. And what kind of impact will that then have in the future of my understanding of my role in being part of the bride of Christ one day? David, super helpful. Um, you'll see, uh, I think Kelly Barton put um, a link to some of David's teachings around this idea of uh, what marriage is. Um, it, it's in the... Um, it's in the chat there. But yeah, again, what we believe matters and it impacts right. how we treat each other, how we treat ourselves. It impacts our politics and how we spend our money. So these are the things that, uh, yeah, that we get to think about today. So I'm not exactly sure how to wrap this up. So I'm turning it over to Israel Rubio, who 